Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged, brought to you by Hedgeye Risk Management. Today is March 31st, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Well, it's been a news-rich week, and I think it's fair to say that we're all trying to assemble the jumble of jigsaw pieces scattered across the table and make a coherent picture out of them all. There is one big question that is, uh, I think it's fair to say, it's the focus of the world's attention right now, and that is the trajectory and duration of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you look at total cases or deaths in rate of change terms, or look at the geographic extent of the pandemic, I think you have to agree that the news over the past week has not been good. There is no let up in the total exponential growth rates. Nine days ago, we were at 10,000 deaths outside of China. Last night, we were at 38,000 deaths. Nine or 10 days from now, well, uh, I think we're on track to be over 100,000 deaths. And what about the duration? Well, the primary focus of public policy around the world right now is on suppressing new infections, flattening the curve is the expression, and thereby doing everything we can to extend the duration. That's how we can avoid overwhelming our hospitals and saving lives. The need to extend the duration of lockdown policies was reflected over the weekend by President Trump's concession that no, okay, maybe it's not a good idea for America to get back to business on Easter. He said we'll stay on lockdown until early May, but you can bet on further corrections to that correction once he hears back from governors in three or four weeks. The second question the world has been focusing on is how to make sense of the bewildering multiplicity of policies created in response to the pandemic. They add up to a sort of tidal wave of monetary and fiscal stimulus let loose on the global economy. Is it enough? Is it too much? Will it work as intended? Will it all have long-term consequences we will come to regret? The third question is how to assess the first real economic indicators coming in that can inform us about the magnitude of the deep recession coming at us. What's really remarkable here is that this thing has come at us so fast that we still don't have much data on its magnitude. Outside of China, we're just beginning to get our most preliminary signals. And that leads me to the fourth and final big question a lot of people are asking. What should we make of the reaction of global markets? Global equity markets were up hugely last week, which could mean a lot or maybe nothing at all. It's almost as if the world took a look at an impending economic crisis, policymakers responded, and the markets decided they liked the response all before the first real signs of damage are appearing. So it's kind of weird. It's like the market has gone through all 12 stages of grief 
and has now recovered before even seeing much evidence yet of what they were grieving about. Well, we're going to talk about all this, and maybe the best way to do this is to address all four questions in reverse order. That means we start, actually, as we usually start, by talking about markets. Since my last podcast, over the last five market days, the S&P 500 has climbed by 17.4%, and meanwhile, the global Dow has risen by 15.7%. So how's that for volatility? After first a correction, then a bear market, then a 30% plus crash, all compressed into record time historically, we come nearly all the way back with a bull market. The VIX at 57 is still very high, way over its historical average, but at the same time, it's at a steep 35-point premium to the 30-day realized ball, which means that the VIX is much cheaper than it should be, even allowing for its typical regress to mean tendency. So my point here is that, in relative terms, implied vol is selling at a steep discount. So is it a good time to sell the market bounce? Well, maybe it is. To try to explain the SPY's recent buoyancy, we might want to point to other indicators of a nicer, safer outlook. I mean, let's look at all that's going on. But I'm not sure where they are. The dollar is sure a lot higher than the Fed would like it to be after all of its rate cutting, which suggests plenty of panicky safe harbor investing from abroad. I'm not sure that's reassuring. Gold is likewise maintaining its new highs. And meanwhile, all the economy-relevant commodities are plummeting to new depths. That includes oil, obviously, which is now struggling to stay over $20, but it also includes industrial metals, things like uh, copper and iron and even agricultural produce. Not much light down those tunnels. Credit spreads remain above 9 percentage points, which tells you that investors remain scared of taking risks. And even the, the... TED spread remains high, indicating that even after this gush of central bank liquidity, banks aren't quite sure about each other's solvency just yet. As I pointed out last week, the combination of a high dollar and high credit spreads will quickly pose existential policy choices for many emerging market economies. At the beginning of this year, sovereign debt in only four countries was considered distressed. And I think three of these had been twisting around for some time. Countries like Venezuela, Lebanon, Ecuador. But now the number is 18, and it's growing fast. Many of these are African countries like Angola, Ghana, and Zambia. The largest is Nigeria. Even larger economies are on their way, will soon be on their way. Okay, well, let's go beyond markets themselves for a moment and see if we can find some indicators in the real economy that might inspire confidence. But here I come back to a point I made earlier. Outside of China, where the numbers are hard to interpret, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit so fast that we really just don't have many numbers yet. And I have to say, the numbers we do have don't really inspire much confidence. Let's look first at the United States. Last week, we already talked about the market PMIs based on early March, 
which range from 49 for manufacturing at the high end to 39 for services at the low end. This week, the only decent readings were still for February, like the various durable goods orders, which actually came in around zero month over month. But of course, of course, that was February, which no longer really matters. Everything else which captures any piece of March was terrible. The Kansas Fed released its regional manufacturing index, which was down 18 points to a level not seen since 2009. The Dallas Fed index plummeted to an incredible minus 70 in one month, descending 10 points lower than ever before, even at the worst point of 2009. Of course, we're talking here about the impact of $20 oil. I mean, this is Texas after all. So combining last week and this week, we've seen four regional Fed indexes, and they're all dive bombing. We also saw released this week the final Michigan Consumer Sentiment and Expectations numbers, which reach five points worse than the preliminary numbers uh, we looked at last week. Keep in mind that all of these numbers are still going to get a lot worse next month when we're measuring early April rather than early March. So what's coming up for the coming week? Well, on Wednesday, that is tomorrow, we get the ISM PMIs uh, for the United States and the final market PMIs for March. We also get the ADP payroll numbers. On Thursday, we get another week of initial jobless claims, which promises to come in even higher than last week's blowout 3.3 million number. And on Friday, we get the NFP job and unemployment numbers. Something to keep in mind is that this BLS number will reflect jobs during the second week of March. That is, during a week that started three weeks ago. It will be bad, but it will still reflect pre-shutdown America. We'll still have to wait another month to see exactly where we're heading job-wise. Now let's go abroad. China, of course, is starting to recover bit by bit from its total shutdown in February. And early this morning, we got an early sign of this recovery. The official NBS manufacturing PMI swung back up to 52.0 in March from its record low of 35.7 in February. Now, the media is sure to misconstrue this as China returning back to normal. No, that's not what it means. Each PMI, Purchasing Managers Index, measures the share of all managers who answer better or worse to questions like, how is your production or orders or employment or whatever compared to what it was in the previous months? Again, for emphasis, compared to what it was in the previous month. So a reading of just over 50 in the NBS means that China's big state-owned factories are producing a little bit more than they did in February. It does not mean they are back to normal. It will probably take many months in a row running in the low to mid-50s before China's factories are back to normal. As for the Eurozone, we already looked at the terrible flash PMIs for March release last week. This week, we didn't get much more except for business and consumer confidence numbers that were clearly sloping down. So my take on the economic numbers, we don't really have much yet outside of China that reflects any economy's full entry into the 
lockdown reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we do have is hard to interpret exactly, except to say that it's, well, it's very negative. Okay, let's move on then to the policy reaction. Maybe that explains why markets have been upbeat this week. And here I have to say that there does appear to be a temporal correspondence. The big equity up moves in the U.S. and Europe seem to be triggered by the Fed's big second bazooka it fired the weekend before last, along with a massive, I don't know, $2 trillion plus CARES package passed by Congress and signed by President Trump a week later. The up moves coincided as well with the decision by the EU to get rid of its circuit breakers, with ECB President Christine Lagarde's decision to override earlier limits on buying member country sovereign debt, and finally, on Germany's decision to run a sizable deficit itself. Well, sizable, I mean, it's uh, 4% of GDP. Um, we fiscal profligates here in the America wouldn't call it a big deal. Here we run a 4% deficit on a warm and sunny day. But, but hey, for Germany, that was a big deal. Well, on the positive side, you could say that this is by far the biggest monetary and stimulus wallop the developed world has ever tried. The Obama stimulus package in 2009 amounted to 5.5% of GDP at that time, while the CARES package just passed is scored at 9.2% of GDP. That's a lot more. So shouldn't the market be more optimistic this time around? What's more, the Fed is intervening much faster. It's cutting the near end to zero in one whack and going into massive QE mode right away. And that's not all. Backed by the Treasury, the Fed will soon be shoveling guaranteed grant loans. I believe the term of art here is groans. Directly to businesses through the banks. And in the case of large businesses, the Fed will be providing that financing directly in bond purchases and in so-called bridge loans. The EU as well is responding much more vigorously than it did in 2009, especially on the fiscal stimulus side. So, okay, that should be a positive for the markets. But then look at the other side. The economic magnitude of the supply and demand shortfall we're facing is also much larger than in 2009. I went through those awful GDP drop projections last week. But here's another one. Out this week from the OECD, it says that high-income countries are facing annualized GDP declines of 20 to 25 percent and consumption declines of 33 percent. And that's not just one country, that's all of them. The U.S. is about in the middle of the range. France, the U.K., Germany, Spain, Italy, and Greece are all at the top end of this range. No one was projecting anything remotely like that back in 2009. What's more, on the monetary side, we have to wonder how much stimulus any of the world's central banks can deliver on their own at this point. Going into 2008-2009, short-term rates were much higher, so there was a lot of room to cut. Ten-year treasuries and German bunds were still between 4 and 5%. This time, we're going into an economic crisis with the entire yield curve much nearer to zero. So, there's a lot less room for improvement. 
And, and let me add one more warning, which applies especially to the United States. And that is whether logistically our ramshackle fiscal system can actually deliver the kind of relief we're talking about in a timely manner. A lot of the European countries have um, adopted a pretty elegant system of worker earnings replacement. It's patterned after the German Kurzarbeit system, and it means that the government directly takes over the payment of a large share of worker earnings. In the U.S., we're trying to push most wage support to still-employed workers through the banks, but that's like pushing city water through a straw. Banks are simply not constitutionally set up to do this kind of massive job. By nature, banks are always wary of risk. And now we're telling them, no, not this time. It's all guaranteed. Don't worry about risk. Just push that money out the door. But this isn't their line of business. They're always going to be worrying. What if that last guaranteed loan wasn't actually signed and agency approved in triplicate? Does that mean we'll be on the hook for it? This could be a lot slower than people expect. I'm, I'm especially concerned about the $350 billion that the Small Business Administration is supposed to be doling out to businesses with under 500 workers. These businesses account for 99% of all U.S. businesses and account for roughly 50% of all U.S. workers. And I'm sorry, but everyone, at least here in the District of Columbia, knows that the SBA is a sleepy little agency that normally hands out less than one-tenth of that amount every year and barely does even that without months of delay working painstakingly with banks. Trump has just named a new head to the agency, Jovita Carranza, to handle the task, and all I can say is, let's wish her luck. And then you have, and then you have one more thing this curious competitor to business subsidies to keep people employed, and that is the big federal add-on to state unemployment benefits to people who lose their jobs. That add-on amounts to $600 a week and is supposed to last until the end of July. Even for the lowest paid or lowest skilled worker, this basically constitutes a nationwide $20 per hour payment to be unemployed rather than employed. And I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon, and I know that a bunch of GOP senators led by Lindsey Graham were criticized for bringing up this point, but it may be unreasonable to expect people to work at many unpleasant or dangerous jobs for the next few months. And I think you can say that anything that brings you in contact with other people now can be regarded as dangerous for any wage that doesn't considerably exceed what they can get paid for just staying home. In fact, why would a large corporation opt for partial credit for keeping them employed when it knows that they would be better off and the firm would be better off if it laid them off? So here's my point, just so I'm not misunderstood on this. If it is our intended policy to maximally shut down the American economy until at least the end of July, then fine. Let's declare that up front and let's pay people plenty to stay home. But surely we can set up a better system than forcing companies to lay them off for them to get this deal. I'm looking at the headlines and I see as many big companies like Macy's laying off huge numbers of workers this week 
as there were last week before the CARES Act was passed. And as for those who are still working, those who are providing all kinds of vital services that still need to be performed from food prep and delivery to power communications, law and order, all the rest, let's find a way to pay them even more. They should be getting bonuses. Some people tell me, Neil, the 2009 recession was a lot worse than this one will be because because of the huge balance sheet imbalances affecting American households after the mortgage crisis run up. And my response is, wow, what do you think our household and corporate balance sheets are going to look like after we simply cease production and income for several months in a row? There will be wreckage in the aftermath. Let me give you one special instance of a provision in the CARES Act that is I understand why we're doing it, but it may come back to haunt us. This is the one that allows people younger than 59 and a half to take up to $100,000 out of their 401ks or IRAs without penalty and provides for delayed tax liability on the withdrawal. Regular listeners and readers uh, know how often I have paraded statistics showing how unprepared, utterly unprepared, late-wave boomers and especially Gen Xers are for their retirement. For first-wave Xers born in the early 60s, that is people who are today in their late 50s, their median retirement assets are now around $225,000. That is to say, you know, that's the halfway point. Half of the people are above, half of the people are below. That is the lowest number for this age group in real dollars that we have ever measured going all the way back to the early 1990s. It is about $100,000 less than the late-wave silent and first-wave boomers had at this age, oh, about 15 years ago. And now we're telling this vulnerable group, hey, it's okay to burn another 100 k of that right now to make ends meet? If this isn't a lasting household balance sheet problem, I mean, I don't know what is. So again, let's return to the market response. Thus far, the Bear market bottomed out at minus 33.9% from the peak, and the market has since reclaimed just over 11% of that. This is a bit less than the typical bear market bottom, and much less than 2009 when the market bottomed at minus 56.4%, and much less than 2002 when it bottomed at 49.1%. I'm citing these numbers just to give us all a comparative sense of where we are. In my opinion, the perception by at least some investors that this market bottom will be relatively limited is not due to any sense that the markets are adjusting easily or that the GDP hit will be small or that the massive fiscal and monetary response will roll out smoothly and without a hitch. I think the perception is based on something else. And this is the expectation that the recession, brutal though it may be, will be short-lived. I think, in other words, that a lot of investors are looking forward to a V-shaped recovery. Well, I think we have to concede a lot of ignorance on this question. That's because the ultimate duration of this crisis will be determined not by humans, but by a novel viral pathogen. SARS-CoV-19, and we really don't know much about this virus. I mean, I'm 
just thinking back to what Dr. Anthony Fauci said after hearing President Trump's proposal, which he has since rescinded to open America back up for business by Easter. You don't make the timeline, said Fauci. The virus makes the timeline. So if people are talking about a V-shaped recovery, maybe now is a good time to revisit what happened the last time the world was hit by something similar. And that was the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. That was not just a big whammo that was over in three or four months. That was a pandemic that lasted more like 15 months. It started back in the early spring of 1918, while World War I was still raging and Germany was actually rolling forward into France during its Ludendorff offensive. It eased off a bit during the summer and fall when the Yankees entered the war and when Germany was pushed back and ultimately surrendered. And then it raged back in its deadliest wave in the late fall of 1918 and the winter of 1919, just as all the troops were returning home. And that it hit its last victims, depending on the region, in the spring of 1919. The United States entered a seven-month recession from August 1918 to March 1919, due partly to demobilization and partly to the sorts of civic shutdowns we're going through now. And then just nine months later, it entered a second recession, the massive deflationary contraction of 1920 to 21. It was not a happy time, either biologically or economically. And what about the duration of those shutdowns? Well, there were rolling shutdowns, sometimes on and sometimes off in different cities throughout the entire period. But one thing should be kept in mind. Back then, no one really knew what a virus was. Only a handful of researchers had hypothesized the existence of viruses, and it would be another 20 years before anyone actually photographed a virus under an electron microscope. Since no one really knew how social distancing worked, it was practiced sporadically. More importantly, there was no such thing as overwhelming the healthcare system, since there was nothing much doctors could do for victims other than keep them warm and hydrated. There were no ventilators, no ECMOs, no antibodies for the deadly secondary infections, and there was no prospect of a vaccine on the horizon. Shutting down the economy was less of an option back then because most of us were closer to a subsistence living standard. But also, shutting down the economy, while it indeed flattened the curve and limited the rate of new infections and deaths, probably didn't do as much to reduce the overall death toll once the influenza had done its work. So it was less practiced. Just note the differences between then and now. Today, we are more affluent, so shutting down most of the economy actually is a practical option. Today, because we can do a lot more to treat victims, preventing hospital overload really can save a lot of lives. What this means is that today, flattening the curve way down with suppression measures really does generate big rewards. But here's what I want to emphasize. Flattening the curve also means extending the duration of the pandemic. In fact, that's the very purpose of flattening the curve, to reduce the time flow of infections and deaths so that medical experts can treat most of the serious cases. 
but that necessarily means that the total time will be extended up to that moment, of course, when a vaccine or some super, super effective antiviral med can put a definitive end to the scourge. Right now, the most hopeful target for rolling out a tested vaccine is sometime early next year. So there we are. In all probability, I think we're going to look forward to some substantial degree of suppression on economic activity until early 2021. A V-shaped recovery? I just don't see it. Now, having said all this, let me add some qualifications. First of all, Yes, if an effective vaccine comes along early, that would be wonderful. It would give everyone instant immunity and quickly put an end to the whole thing. But researchers tell me that the vaccine has to be carefully tested. And one reason is that a bad vaccine can actually render people more vulnerable to the virus than they were before. This is due to something called antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. And I don't have time to talk a lot about this right now, but I I will talk a bit more about it on my Thursday COVID-19 update, which I hope you can tune in to watch. Interestingly, ADE may actually explain why older people are uniquely vulnerable to COVID-19. It's not that their immune systems aren't responding. It's that they're responding too well and in the wrong way due to their longer contact with common cold coronaviruses. Anyway, there's This is a a fascinating new aspect of research that's going on, and and, uh, please tune in on Thursday for for more about it. Secondly, we remain, all of us remain pathetically ignorant about three critical numbers pertaining to COVID-19. It's it's infection multiplier number, it's it's R-naught. It's infection fatality rate, or IFR, and also the share of the population which will ultimately be susceptible to infection. These are three big numbers. We wish we knew more about them. Some researchers, notably a team at Oxford University, has suggested last week that the current case numbers and death numbers could hypothetically be generated by a pathogen with a much higher infection multiplier and a much lower infection fatality rate, in which case, The bad news is there's nothing much we can do to contain it since it's so infectious. But the good news is that its ultimate death toll will be limited and the duration will be short. It would also mean that a large share of today's population has already acquired immunity. We'd be most of our way to the uh, fabled uh, herd immunity that uh, the the, uh, health leaders in, in the Netherlands and Sweden and the UK have already been talking about. In fact, the the Oxford group suggested that as much as half of the UK population may already have antibody protection. Now, I find this supposition very implausible, and so do the epidemiologists at the Imperial College, who have basically said that if asymptomatic infection were so common, we would already have picked it up in cities and regions where entire populations were randomly tested with PCR swab kits. But I do agree that the early estimates of an IFR, that is to say infection fatality rate of 1% or 2% or 3%, were too high. And early on, I suggested that the true IFR is probably closer to 0.5%. And I think that's still a pretty good estimate. 
This allows for a lot of asymptomatic cases and a uh, R-naught of well over two, but it also means a high death toll, nearly a million deaths in the U.S. If, if even just half the population is susceptible. Is half a good estimate? Well, again, we just don't know. Chancellor Angela Merkel warned her people that up to 70% of them would ultimately become infected. We will know a lot more about all these questions once we mass produce a serum antibody test and start randomly testing large populations. And if I were anywhere in the White House, I would be making that an urgent priority, as urgent as producing masks and ventilators. Without knowledge, we are helpless. Finally, as I have also been arguing in my Thursday calls, I am hugely in favor of a smart suppression strategy that enables us to do something more intelligent than simply turn our entire economy's master switch either on or off. Smart suppression starts by finding out who already has antibodies and can be presumed to be immune. It also means widespread testing, the tracking of all contacts, and enforceable self-isolation and quarantining. Some people say this violates civil liberties, but I say let's be sensible. Just wait until this pandemic keeps steamrolling our economy and you will witness the rise of authoritarian governance much worse than anything I'm talking about. Being smart means getting to your goal with the least collateral damage. Thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again on, well, on on Thursday or next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Demography Unplugged. Tune in next time. If you have any questions about this broadcast or have suggestions for future topics, please contact qademography at hedgeye.com. Also, if you'd like to see more of what I have to offer, visit us online at hedgeye.com and also make sure to follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.